Osito exists to champion coffees of the single growers and grower associations throughout all of Colombia. They work to cultivate long-standing relationships between roasters and farmers, all built on the basis of fair pricing and unparalleled quality. That quote, taken directly from an introduction video on their website, basically sums up the reasons why I love working with Kyle, David, and their team at Osito. I've been following Osito Coffee for a while on social media when one day I stumbled upon a, cr- a post announcing that they were about to import their first ever work with cacao from Colombia. I just had a feeling there was something about this cacao that was special and had a story to be told. I quickly reached out to Kyle and just as quickly had a reply back. They asked me how much I wanted for a sample as this was their first foray into chocolate. A few days later, it arrived on my doorstep. The absolute most important thing for me when thinking about a new origin is the relationship I will have with the importer and equally as important to my relationship with them is their relationship with the farmers where cacao is grown. I've seen the efforts they put into helping their coffee producers, so I just knew that if they were bringing this in for cacao, there had to be something special. The beans are truly beautiful. Barely any need to be sorted out, and even after my very first test roast, fireworks were going off. Currently, I make a 70% bar and sipping chocolate with this origin, but soon a few restaurants will be using it in their desserts, and I have many other plans for new bars, hot chocolates, and who knows what else. I also recently purchased some coffee from them as well, and I've been roasting it to learn more about the roasting process. Both Kyle and David have been over-the-top helpful. I'm so excited for this episode, not only to hear about why they have decided to start with cacao, but also to hear more about the amazing country of Colombia. So sit back and enjoy today's episode with Kyle Bellinger from Osito Coffee. Hi, Kyle. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Uh, how is uh, everything going so far? I know you were just in Colombia, actually, um, and we were talking about that a little bit before uh, the podcast started. You were there um, initially going for a coffee competition, but then because of the rise in COVID cases, you were saying it got canceled, correct? Well, the competition itself didn't get canceled, but uh, the the clients that we were expecting to be a part of it, oh, okay. uh, they all they all canceled. Got so, it. Got it. Yeah, but all in all, it was still a success. We were, some of them were able to participate remotely, um, which logistically isn't the easiest thing, but it's also better than not having them participate right. at all. Right. So, yeah, there's a lot of that being said these days, where it's just better than not at all. So. Yep. Exactly. Um, yeah. Now, Colombia. I mean, as a country, and I think certainly for listeners in the United States, we get, you know, sort of a one-sided view of of what the country is. And I've I say this a lot in this podcast, but I, I watch a lot of um, YouTube videos of people sailing around the world, and I've watched a few that have as they're making their pass through the Caribbean and they stop before getting to Panama, they'll they'll pull into Colombia occasionally and. Um, watching some of their on-land trips when they are off of the boat, it, it seems to be an absolutely spectacularly beautiful country. <laughs> um, so would you mind sort of giving uh, like a 
a, a broad view and then narrowing it down as much as you want of the country of Colombia? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, for me, Colombia has become a, a second home. You know, and I don't say that lightly, but, you know, having invested so much of myself, both, you know, time, energy, but, you know, literal, my, my financial resources, um, you know, it, it's, some, it's, some, it's a place that I am, like, truly and deeply invested in. Um, and it's for, you know, it's for a variety of reasons, but ultimately, like, it is just an unbelievable country in so many ways. And it's unfortunate because I think, you know, the, what is known of Colombia is that it's, you know, this narco state and like, you know, <laughs> Netflix shows right. don't really help that, yeah. you know? Um, and obviously, you know, drug trafficking is uh, is a huge part and still remains a part of, of Colombia's history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, as far as I know, exports of uh, of cocaine are, are up, technically speaking. Um, obviously, it's taken a backseat in the news. It's different than the days of the Medellin cartel and the mm-hmm. Cali cartel. Um, but it's still there. Um, but unfortunately, that that's just what people know about Colombia, that that. that that it's just that. Right. But it's just, it's so, so, so much more. Um, you know, first of all, like, Colombia, like, in terms of, like, climate, has literally everything. I mean, along the coast, it is tropical. It is hot. Too hot for my, my personal taste. But, <laughs> but you go to Cartagena, and Cartagena is a beautiful city. It's a gorgeous city. Um, but it is like, you know, it is very, very hot. And, uh, you know, off the coast, a little, what, a little ways, there are some islands with some great beaches. But then, you know, you, a lot of people don't realize it because, you know, people who don't are not super, super well-traveled throughout Latin America. Like, it's easy to assume that most of it's just a lot warmer than it is here in the States, you know. Right. But, like, you get to, to Bogota, and it's, it's an average 60 degrees year-round because the elevation is so, so high. You know, it, Bogota is over 2,600 meters above sea level. And so wow. it gets down to like, you know, the 40s. Wow. Um, it, it never gets below 40 degrees and never gets above 80, which for me sounds wow. yeah. awesome. Pretty, pretty perfect. <laughs> like that sounds <laughs> really, really great. Um, and, you know, it's kind of everywhere in between from there. Um, you know, the, the coffee lands, obviously, like the, not obviously, I guess many people listening to this may not realize this, but coffee is grown at relatively high elevation. Um, and so if coffee growing at 2,000 meters above sea level, close to the equator, like, that's not very warm, you know? Right. But, you know, the further, the, the further down you go, the warmer it gets. And, you know, like even in the state of the, the department of Wheela, which is where our headquarters is, you have everything from, you know, the highest peak in Colombia to a desert, wow. a literal desert, all within a couple hours of coffee, which grows somewhere in between those, you know? Right, right. Um, so it's just, I don't know, it's it's. it's fascinating country with you know so many different groups of people spread out over you know all these different you know geographies which is just it makes it fascinating and kind of like there, there can be endless exploration yeah it seems that way i was 
it's interesting because I was I've been listening to the Cropster podcast, and the last few episodes have been of the founders of Cropster and the roasting software and how they yeah um, founded it and 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 they all spent time in Colombia like in the early days of trying to develop. So like there is a draw for people to go to Colombia. Um, totally. And but- over the last, like, I don't know, let's say 10 years, there really has been a boom in, in tourism. I mean, obviously the, the yeah. pandemic sort of uh, did away with that for a little while. But like, you know, cities like Medellin, which at one point was the murder capital of the world, <laughs> right. now is a is a huge tourist destination. Medellin is a beautiful city. There's yeah. loads to do, bars, restaurants, music, clubs. Like, there's so much. And, like, you're in the middle of the mountains. So, like, there's outside the city, there's loads of agro-tourism and oh, wow. stuff like that. You know, you can go pay someone way too much money to pick coffee cherries for a day, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah. but there's all sorts of stuff I got available now. Now, what is it that sort of brought you guys to Colombia? Cause for your coffee and obviously now with the cacao, I mean, I know you do have other origins as well, but that's sort of the focus of, um, the, the coffees that you guys are, are importing to the U S and the UK. Yeah. So, you know, first of all, we are, technically two different businesses. We have an export operation in Colombia okay. and an import operation here in the U.S. that has, you know, satellite locations in the U.K. and, and EU. Um, but, you know, as far as how you know, I got to Colombia, really starts when I was working for a small roasting company here in Connecticut. Um, I started traveling to a couple different countries to meet farmers and to buy coffee, you know, what we call direct trade. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a debate as to whether or not that word, that phrase means anything. Um, but the idea at the time was just to know the people that we're buying coffee from. Um, and so that started with a family that, I, you know, I still know and, and care about in Honduras. And Colombia was quickly the second, uh, the second country that I really wanted to source coffee in. And so I started traveling there many years ago. And on my first trip, I, I met who is now my partner. His name is Jose Javier Lozada. And at the time, I was introduced to him because he owned a farm. Um, and the, the exporter that I was working with said, oh, you might get along with this guy. This might be a good, a good person for you to partner with. And so we visited the farm. And I visited a bunch of farms on that particular trip. And I, and to be honest, Jose's farm was the, the least impressive on paper. It's kind of a lower elevation, which in coffee, you know, not always, but can correlate to lower quality. Mm-hmm. Um, he was only growing one variety, whereas others were growing at least two or three. So, like, it wasn't the most impressive, but I just knew that, like, this was the person I wanted to work with. Like this was the guy. Mm. Um, and so I was like, oh, no, I'll buy whatever he has available right now. And that kind of started this, this partnership uh, with, with Jose and I, and, you know, I guess about a few months later, he emailed me and said, Hey, listen, you know, technically this is owned, this farm is owned by my brother and I, but he doesn't really want to do this anymore. So I have to find someone to buy his, his shares because I, I can't afford to buy him out myself. Mm-hmm. 
you know, he's like, I just want to let you know this might affect our relationship, but I'm still, you know, I still really want to work with you. Um, and I was like, okay, well, that's, that's great. Thank you for letting me know. I, I hope that this gets worked out. So a few months later, I go back to visit him again and we're talking, granted, through a translator, because at the time I spoke no Spanish, and to this day he still speaks no English. <laughs> um, we're discussing, you know, how this is going to happen, and and somehow, I don't, I still don't remember how, we got on the topic of me being that person to buy out his brother. <laughs> and wow. I was like, wait a second. This is my second time in Colombia. We literally can't communicate with one another <laughs> without a translator. And you're asking me if I want to buy a coffee farm. No, there is no way that that is ever going to happen. But inevitably, about six months later, there I was in the lawyer's office in Bogota signing papers oh, on a coffee geez. farm. Wow. Wow, that's crazy. <laughs> I will say it was the quietest celebration ever because after we signed the papers, Jose and his wife, Lida, we went out to lunch and at the time, I still didn't speak any Spanish. Oh, goodness. And we're like, you know, getting a <laughs> bottle of wine to celebrate, but like, we can't actually talk to one another. Yeah. <laughs> it oh, was man. like, it was a very quiet celebration. Um, and it was at that moment that I was like, oh my God, what did I just do? I just wired many thousands of dollars to this person that I can't actually talk to. Like, what am I doing? That's wild. So did you typically uh, always have uh, an, an interpreter with you? Uh, up until that point, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I guess it was prior to us actually signing the papers, I only been to Columbia twice. Uh, so the third time, I didn't have a translator. Although the lawyer we were working with, he spoke English and was able to, you know, help us dig into those, you know, those particular points um, in the contracts and everything. But after that, I was on my own. Um, wow. And it really kind of sunk in that the coin dropped and I was like, oh, my goodness, what did I just do? Yeah, what, um, what did that like? What did that part feel like when you? It was scary because, yeah. like, you know, I talked to a couple of people who have done stuff like this, you know, Americans who own farmland in other countries. And, like, you know, I, I remember one guy I talked to, he, he was, like, trying to tease out all these worst-case scenarios. I was like, well, what if this guy is actually a trafficker, you know? What if he's, like, you know, <laughs> putting cocaine in the bag of coffee? And I'm like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Um uh, but, you know, now several years removed from that, I can honestly say that, that Jose has been the absolute best partner that I could ever imagine. Um, you know, I've, I've been a part of a number of different businesses, had different business partners, and he has just been unbelievable. Like, we could not do half the things that we do without him, without his vision, without his leadership. And, you know, I'm just grateful that I learned how to speak some Spanish and that we can, we can actually right. communicate rather, <laughs> rather efficiently. Um, but, uh, you know, he has just been unbelievably trustworthy. You know, we have, you know, ridden out at least what I hope is most of the pandemic together when it was really, really hard for a few months. And, like, he's just been a rock. And so I am endlessly grateful for him. Um but the, ultimately, like, you know, that was just, that was just a farm. Like, that, like the, the idea of Osito, the idea of exporting coffee, like, was still not even a seed of an idea. 
So how did that, um, how did that start to form when you? Yeah. So I like, I was, I guess this is about 2016, 2017. The roasting company that I was working for, you know, it just wasn't going exactly the way I would have hoped. The growth wasn't really happening. So I was kind of looking at like, what's the next thing? You know, what, like, do, do I, do this roasting thing by myself, which I did for a little while, kind of separate from the cafe business. And uh, like I kind of developed this kind of brand of Osito and thinking maybe I can grow this kind of like a Columbia-focused roasting company. Now, uh, hold on one second. So where did the name come from? Uh, that's a good question. Um, not many people ask that. I, I often wonder why, because it's kind of an obscure name. Well, and um, I, I did a quick Google search to try to see what the name was, and it, it's a, yeah. it seems to be primarily a Spanish word. Uh, yeah, yes, it is. So, so go ahead. Spanish word. So it's a diminutive of oso, which means bear. Yep. So essentially little bear. Um, the significance of that, though, is, Tyler, as you and I had discussed, my grandmother grew up on the Onondaga Reservation uh, just outside of Syracuse, New York. Yeah. Um, and when I was a baby, um, she and my father gave me the name Owila Ogwai, which in Onondaga means baby bear. Um, so essentially, the business is named after you know, my, my indigenous name. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a really cool story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's a big part of, of how I grew up. Um, you know, even though technically I am only 25% Onondaga, uh, my grandmother did grow up on the reservation. My father grew up close to the reservation. Um, and it was always something that was a, a you know, a huge part of, of how I grew up. Even to this day, like when I hang up the phone, with my father, he says, he says goodbye in Onondaga. Oh, wow. That's really, that's amazing. I think it's interesting yeah. that you chose that because the the spiritual aspect of that name that was given to you and kind of a, of an animal that is from the land, let's say, it yeah. ties back to, you know, the farmers that you're working with and the indigenous yeah. peoples of a country working again, like of kind of animals of the land, so to speak. So it's an interesting kind of tie that you've created there. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, for some reason, bears have, I don't know, maybe not, maybe coincidentally, maybe not, have always kind of been like a, a thread in my life, mm. um, and it just seemed to make sense, um, unfo- kind of unfortunately, a friend many years ago kind of made the joke, like, he, knowing my, my Native American name, knowing that I was going to Columbia, like, I was like, oh, well, your, your, your drug lord name is Osito. And I was like, oh, that sucks that you kind of made that connection, but um, it's kind of a catchy name regardless. Yeah, well, I think it's a beautiful name. Um, so, so anyway, I, sorry to stop you there. I, I, that was just one of the things I wanted to make sure I asked before I forgot. So, um, No, no, I'm glad you did. So yeah, so keep, uh, keep going as the company's sort of coming together. Yeah, so, you know, I was kind of – kind of looking for like the next branch to grab onto basically from the roasting I was doing, maybe like I do another roasting company, you know, kind of long term, I thought, you know, it'd be great to, you know, source coffee and be able to sell green coffee. So I think that would be really cool, but that requires a huge amount of money, like ridiculous amounts of money 
to export and import coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, like small roasters, like what I was and the, who we currently sell to, you know, they buy a couple bags of coffee here and there. And it's a few hundred dollars. And, you know, we have creative sort of financing schemes where we can finance it long term. So it's not a huge drain on, you know, cash flow for people. But to buy a container of coffee, like right now with the market where it is, like, you know, that's $175,000. It, what's, <laughs> like, what has, I know you guys have been putting up a lot of posts about the increase in coffee prices specifically. Um, yeah. Just, I mean, not, not to go into too much detail, but what is it that's causing this spike? All It seems to be, maybe it's not all of a sudden, but it seems to be at least in the news all of a sudden. Yeah. So there's a couple different things. You know, generally speaking, inflation is is a real thing. Labor costs are up all over the place. Um, you know, costs generally, shipping costs, the supply chain issues, container shortages, all these things are factors. The biggest thing recently that I think, you know, is it was sort of a, kind of an exclamation point on um I said, I said it in Instagram posts. It's an exclamation point on a sentence that was already written. Mm. This was going to happen. Prices are going to have to go up because essentially the market, if you look at the last 40, 50 years of, of trading, prices have been relatively stagnant. You know, people say it's volatile and certainly there are spikes and, you know, it comes crashing down again. But like prices on average haven't really changed meaningfully, which ultimately means they've gone down because of inflation right. sure you know two dollars today is not what two dollars was in 1975 um and so basically this this had to happen but the biggest catalyst recently was that there was a major frost in brazil and kind of you know anecdotally people say that the biggest factor on coffee prices globally is the weather in brazil because brazil is the the biggest producer of coffee and so any sort of change in the supply in Brazil means that everything in the world changes. And it was absolutely true this past July, August, when there was just, there was a major frost. And estimates are, you know, that about 30% of the crop was lost, which, which doesn't necessarily mean 30% of this year's crop, but also next year's crop. Sure. Which, which in, instantly, literally within hours, made the price go through the roof and it's only been going up since then um so that's been that's been the biggest thing of late um but the trouble is which is where it gets really really tricky is that when we when we started the business in Colombia, you know buying coffee we were paying you know a certain minimum price for for what we call parchment coffee like raw like unmilled coffee okay um, today we are paying two and a half times that price. Mm. The, the trouble with that is that producers' price at a cost have gone up so much that they're not actually earning any more money, even though we're paying two point five x what we were paying. Yeah, that was going to be that was going to be my next question: is how much of the price increase is actually making it back to the origin? Yeah, I would much. say. Not much. I mean, there are, you know, I, I guess you could say that, you know, some farm workers, not even necessarily farm owners, are making more money. You know, I know we're, we, as as a farm owner myself, we are paying, you know, 30% more in just having people come and pick coffee for us. Mm. Um, 
but then you could also say, well, inflation is up so much that it doesn't matter that these guys are making more money picking coffee because they're paying more for, you know, to get there. Everyday and, items. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's been, it's been a wild six months. Well, I mean, it's, it's been a wild two years, but like six yeah. months in particular has been really, really crazy. This, this is not maybe even a question you potentially want to answer, but it, it, so right now, you know, cause I, I love to seek out, you know, like special coffees and maybe they're not super yeah. special, but ones that, you know, you, I can't find a, around Syracuse or whatever it might be. And, and basically bags of coffee range anywhere, like a 12 ounce bag of coffee can range anywhere from, let's just say 13 on the low side to, you know, without going too crazy, but I've seen them up over $30 on kind of the yeah. higher side. So in, in your mind what is you know as a consumer who says oh my god i can't believe i'm going to be paying 15 dollars for a bag of coffee but realistically even though we're not there what is a what is a price that uh, that would be um positive for the the for the like really where should prices be for people at origin to be able to, you know, better their lives. Cause I mean, we all work to make our lives better and that's the purpose of doing it. I mean, yes, there is, uh, I'm sure some love and, and, and pride that goes into it, but it, kind of where would you, where should the price be at this point? I mean, it's a hard question to answer only because every producing country is different. You okay. know, um, you know, even just looking at Colombia and Brazil, which are neighboring countries and both produce a lot of coffee. I mean, Brazil is hands down the biggest producer. Vietnam is second and Colombia is third. Um, so, I mean, like Brazil and Colombia are good to compare because they're both in South America. They both are substantial producers of coffee. Yet the, the producers like specific economies are very, very different. You know, Brazilian coffee, like, there are thousand hectare estates that are owned by, you know, some certainly by some Brazilians. Some are, you know, owned by Chinese conglomerates, Mm, you know. In Colombia, the average farm size is two hectares, which is tiny. You know, that's a handful of acres. Mm -hmm. Um, And so prices paid to these producers are sustainable at different levels. You know, I know that there are, there are large farms in Brazil who can get by with, you know, cost of 80 cents and still make a pretty good profit when the market's at a dollar. Mm. And when the market's at a dollar, like, things like it, that is a very, very low price. Sure. Um, for Colombia, though, like, there's never any way that when the market's at a dollar, producers are making money. Just never any way, shape or form, that that's going to happen. And so, you know, it's really specific, which is why, which is why the, the, you know, the traditional model of trading on the stock market doesn't work. It it, it has nothing to do with, with producers needs. Right. You know, it has to do more with the companies who are buying, what what their needs are, you know? And with, as far as producers go, it just doesn't work. And so, especially if you want to talk about specialty coffee, you want to talk about higher quality coffee that that is a is a differentiated product. It can't be linked to that commodity market because commodity and specialty are totally different things and should be traded as such. And so, as far as like 
you know, prices pay, like it's hard to like say like, you know, it's hard to like distill it down to like this one price would be sustainable for coffee farmers, yeah. generally speaking. Okay. But like right now, I mean, you know, we are paying for a lot of Colombian coffee. We're paying FOB, so free on board, what we pay to, you know, an exporting company. In this case, our own exporting company. Um, you know, we're paying, you know, I would say anywhere between four and four dollars and fifty cents per pound FOB. Mm. And I mean, even more than that. You know, I it's it, like and that is higher than it's ever ever been. And we're not making any more money. Producers aren't making any more money. Yeah. You know, relative to the market a year ago when it was, you know, much, much lower, a dollar twenty five. And we were paying, you know, two fifty to three twenty five FOB. It's it's like you gotta wonder who is actually making money. Right. It isn't Where us, is it going? And it isn't farmers. Right. Um, so, yeah, as far as like a sustainable price, it's really tricky. You know, I would say if we're talking about FOB, which includes the exporter's margin, sustainable, which whatever that means, probably is north of five dollars. Which yeah, wow. for most most coffee roasters in the U.S., Europe, U.K., like there's not a chance they're thinking about spending five dollars a pound for you know most of their offerings. Well, like, I think five dollars is like fancy coffee yeah i think just because historically it's been you know a quarter for a cup of coffee from the gas station and it's, yeah. o- it's only been probably in the last maybe i i would say 15 years where this specialty aspect of it where you've got you know these different crossbreeds of geisha and different color bourbons and you know all these different types of of coffee fruits that are now coming about yep. it's just hard to I, I think we've seen that in the cacao industry where, you know, in the, in the bean to bar world, that's, that sprang up because of basically this same issue where peep, where makers wanted better quality and yep. to try to make it so that there could be more money sent back to origin. And I, you know, I think that it, yep. in some, in some areas that has happened because we can, you know, the, the, the price justification is there, you know, with higher quality beans comes higher quality chocolate. Um, But, you know, it's, it's a, it's a similar situation, but I think maybe coffee's fighting even a greater uphill battle because historically with chocolate, it's been, you know, two or $3 bars, but now because of the bean to bar aspect, the, the quality level didn't slowly increase. It took a major step forward and once yeah. you have people try that, but it's, you know, coffee has historically been something you buy for a dime or a quarter, or maybe it's even free with a tank of gas. And, um, I think that that's too bad because the coffees that are out there, um, and even the, the, the coffee I just bought from you guys, uh, from long miles in Burundi, I, I, I don't know what I'm doing with roasting coffee, but I, I've roasted two batches so far. The first one got completely out of control. Um, yep. and then, but the second one I'm drinking actually while we're on this podcast and it, I mean, I, again, I don't know what I'm doing with coffee really, but it, it's outstanding. And when people can take the time, it's kind of like what I try to say to people with chocolate, when you can actually find and seek out a really good, high quality cup of coffee and sit and just let it kind of linger in your mouth for a second it's an incredible experience. Um, oh, totally. And I so, mean, like, even on a scientific level, like, 
you know, the, the volatile aromatic compounds in coffee greatly outnumber wine. And how much, how many magazines are out there about tasting wine, right. you know, like how, how many billions and billions of dollars are, are go into this industry that's just about, you know, sensorial pleasure. Totally. You know, and I, coffee and, is so and coffee is just so far behind that. Yeah. And, you know, you know, you mentioned that coffee farmers have kind of a, a more of an uphill battle relative to cacao farmers. I actually, you know, I think cacao farmers have it a lot worse, if I'm honest. You know, like the, the way cacao is traded is, is still very much linked to the commodity market. Yeah. Um, the difference, though, is economies of scale. You know, coffee farmers, sure. you know, people... People drink coffee in volume. Yeah. <laughs> you know, even I, I mean, I, I, as a coffee exporter and importer and farm owner, I drink about a cup and a half a day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, there are people that, that just drink gallons of coffee every single day. Right. And so, you know, farmers can produce a lot more. And even though margins are thin, they can make some more. But cacao farmers, it's just not the case. You know, I, when we first started getting into cacao and in, in we specifically, we were meeting with farmers, many of whom did not have the advantage of being able to deliver to a centralized fermentary. Mm-hmm. So they are, you know, they are harvesting pods. They are fermenting themselves in very, very small batches, which as we know is not very good for quality and then drying it themselves and then selling it to a local intermediary. Right. Like there, you know, Throughout the year, they're maybe producing forty kilos of of dry cacao a month without without very good consistency, probably either. Exactly. Yeah. So what that what that translates into is forever being linked to the market, the commodity market, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's just there's no way out of that. Yeah. So, so how did you guys um, like what what brought the cacao? Uh, how did you make that connection um, in Colombia with? Ronaldo and how did that all sort of come about? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, going back to your original question, which is how we, how did we start Osito to begin with, which I think kind of leads into how we got to cow. Mm. You know, Jose, you know, my partner, his background was working for a major cooperative, um, actually a cooperative that, second largest cooperative in Wheela that buys both coffee and cacao. It's, it's, it's a pretty common thing. Like if you go into these small towns, You'll see a lot of a lot of little bodegas pop up who buy who buy dry coffee, wet coffee, cacao, um, even you know corn and beans in some cases, and then sell these on to larger intermediaries and sell it on to another larger intermediary, oh, so an exporter who then exports it. There's the there's where all the extra money's going. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that, that's certainly that's certainly the case for a lot of people, um, but uh, you know. Jose's background specifically was in was in quality analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, specifically of coffee. Um, he wasn't necessarily involved with the cacao portion of the business, but also the cacao portion of the business is not at all focused on quality per se. Um, and so, at a certain point, you know, he and I were talking, and we we're like, you know, what what does the future look like for us? Um, and kind of at the same time, I got approached by. People who are in a you know a larger importing firm, not coffee, a different product, but they were kind of interested in what coffee could look like, specialty coffee specifically. And I met with them. I happened to be going to Colombia like the next like the next day, and I was with Jose, and I was like, "Hey, I, I got approached by these people. They're interested in kind of launching a, a coffee importing business, but 
here's my idea. I really want to set up an exporting business in Colombia and an importing business in the U.S. and just make a really, really short supply chain for small roasters to basically facilitate what had been facilitated for he and I, you know, several years prior. It's a connection with a farmer with very few middlemen. I mean, middlemen is like, is like it's a bad word for a lot of people. I mean, but you need an exporter, you need an importer. Like, mm-hmm. you got to have those things. Those are necessary middlemen. But like, just have, that just create supply chains with the fewest middlemen possible to create ultimate transparency, to create, to facilitate real relationships. Um, and even before I said like, hey, Jose, do you want to do this with me? He was like, uh, we should do that. <laughs> like, All right. And so I came, I went back to these people you know, who eventually became investors and I was like, this is kind of what I want to do. I, I think this makes the most sense to, to just work on Colombian coffee, to just buy directly from farmers, maintain relationships with them, build relationships with roasters, and try to build a relationship between roasters and farmers directly. Um, and, you know, that to today is still our highest goal. And I'm happy to say there have been some success stories. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, certainly some failures, especially when the price of Colombian coffee skyrockets and people are like, oh, uh, you can't sell me $3 blenders anymore. Uh, no, but I can sell you $4.50 blenders. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, you know, I think relationships really get put to the test. Um, but fortunately, like our client base has been super dedicated and even when I think they might falter, you know, many of them have come through and said, yep, you know, we're going to buy two after we bought last year. Doesn't matter if the prices are a dollar higher. Mm. We're, we're there. Yep. We're there for it. And that has been like an unbelievable boon to our business because it only helps us buy more from the people that we're, that we're working with in the ground. It only helps sure. us reaffirm our commitment to them, sure. um, which is amazing. And I could not be more grateful. Um, but essentially, you know, to, to get to cacao, like, you know, Wheela is the largest producer of coffee in, in Colombia. Not, it hasn't always been that way, but in recent years, especially with the specialty coffee boom, it, it has become by far the largest producer as far as like on the departmental level. Um, I mean, there's many departments in Colombia. You hear about the, the coffee axis, which is further north. You hear about regions like Nariño. You hear other areas of Sierra Nevada where, where coffee is produced. Um, but Huila has become a large, a very large producer of coffee. And it's mostly very small landholders. Um, but what many people don't realize is that Huila also produces cacao in many municipalities. Um, and at one point was considered the, the, the cacao capital of Colombia. Man, that was a lot of alliteration. Um, <laughs> the, like the, there were a lot of cacao producers, um, throughout Wheela. Um, unfortunately, one of the biggest producing municipalities was Gigante, which I think technically still is one of the larger producers within the, with, within the department of Wheela. Mm-hmm. Um, but a very large Spanish conglomerate bought a bunch of land and flooded it for oh. a, a hydroelectric plant. Oh, jeez. Um, and it flooded some, I don't know, like 600 hectares of land, like mostly cacao producing land. 
and these are some these are some orchards that are over a hundred years old oh, with some man. very very old trees that are just underwater um, and that really like that dealt a blow to to the the cacao industry in in Vila. you know there are still other cacao producing areas obviously um Marinho, uh, specifically tomaco is is a well known name mm-hmm. um you know further north in the Sierra Nevada um Meta, which is a department that is south east of Bogota, like big fruit producer and cacao as well um and over the last several years, like Wheel has kind of like fallen out of the picture. Like especially as, you know, craft chocolate is, is growing and you see more producers, you see different providers. Wheeler still kinda of has gotten has been forgotten. Mm. Um and having personally always been kind of a fan of craft chocolate ever since I realized like, oh, this can taste this way and this can taste <laughs> that way. Like the same thing that happened with coffee, you know. Right. First time I tasted like a coffee that was like, oh my goodness, this is different, you know? Right. And it was it was the same thing with, with chocolate. You know, I think some of the early chocolate makers that I got into, like Askinosi for one, you know, mm-hmm. we used to, the coffee shop I was working at, we used to buy chocolate from them. And right. first time I tasted it, I was like, oh my goodness, this is not Snickers. Right. <laughs> you know, right. yeah. this is a different thing. Um, and, you know, I think, I think just since then I've been interested in it and always in the back of my mind and even very early on in the Cito Jose and I discussed it like, you know, this is not a crazy model to be buying both coffee and cacao. Mm-hmm. Granted, these are, we want to do it in a highly specialized way, which involves a lot more effort. Um, but moving like the, like the logistics of coffee and cacao are very, very similar, if not most exactly similar. Um, this, we've discovered that the sales cycle for a lot of chocolate makers is very different than what, when coffee roasters. But there are just, there are more than enough similarities to make it an interesting thing for us as a business. Mm-hmm. But then you also see these farmers who desperately need a buyer, you know? Right. Like, there's a, you know, a company Cacao Hunters in Colombia who work with, you know, producers in Tumaco, who work with producers in Sierra Nevada, who work with producers in, I forget where else, there's another big area. They work uh, in Arauca. Um, that's great. And it's great for those producers. And there's a lot of chocolate makers who, who buy a lot of cacao from those places, specifically Tumaco. But, you know, if you look at, if you, if you go back and read journals and read articles about cacao in Colombia, like, yeah, those three areas are, are, are big strongholds for, for cacao. But Wheela is always included in those conversations, mm-hmm. yet no one is, is doing that for producers in Wheela. I think that's like, kind of sort of the exciting thing about cacao for me anyway, is that there are so many small farmers that are growing cacao that it oftentimes really ends up nowhere. Sort of like you said, like they might be on their own. So to have people, uh, you know, be able to like in this case, Ronaldo, and then you guys bringing the cacao, you know, to the, to the United States, uh, in the UK kind of having that pairing of people that can facilitate, 
this amazing chocolate because it's all different and some of it's bad, yeah. but most of it's really good. And yeah. it, like right now, the, the sort of origin, so to speak of, of chocolate are, are endless. Like there's just so many farmers that are still out there waiting to be found in, in growing regions that, uh, have so much to offer, which is, you know, part of what excited me so much about working with you all is, you know, being able to have some of the first bags of cacao that came into the United States and not really know, like maybe know, but not really know what was going to happen. And then to roast the first batch and just to have it come out the way that it did was, it was, it was so exciting. And, um, you know, so I, I'm super grateful for the work that you guys are doing to help get it out that Ronaldo's doing at, you know, at origin with the farmers that he's working with. Um, it's really just, it's so wonderful. Yeah. Well, you know, ultimately I think we are, we are facilitators above all else. Um, certainly that involves a knowledge of quality. Certainly it involves a knowledge, of, you know, agronomy, farming, um, and then knowing how to connect with, with chocolate makers, knowing how to connect with coffee roasters. Um, those are all skills that we have to have as a team. Um, but ultimately, like what I said, it's wanting to facilitate real relationship, which I think is ultimately what leads to, you know, if you want to call it sustainability. Sure. So I hate that word because it doesn't mean anything and people use it to describe all sorts of things that are not actually sustainable. Um, but I think if, if there is a way, it's, it's through a relationship. It's through yeah. wanting, you know, success, like mutually wanting that for, for each and every person in, in the supply chain. And, you know, I, I, I think the, the craft chocolate market will continue to grow. Um, I, it doesn't really show signs of slowing down right now. And I also think that there's, you're going to see more producers like this coming online, you know, even as a result of climate change. You know, it's getting mm. harder to grow really great coffee because you need really high elevation. Mm-hmm. But cacao, you don't. Right. And granted, there might be the flip side of that where it's too hot. I don't really know exactly. But, you know, I do think that, that cacao is going to become a more interesting product for people who have traditionally grown other crops. Mm. Well, that'll um, be exciting to see as it develops, if, you know, if that is the yeah. case. So. The trouble, though, you know, as, as, as you know, that you know, many producers don't have access to centralized fermenters. Mm-hmm. You know, they are doing it themselves on their farm. And that does, that never leads to high quality. That never leads to a differentiated product like, like what we're talking about. And so you have to have these, these centralized buying stations that can buy in volume, process it together, right. and create, you know, really high quality cacao that can be turned into really great craft chocolate. Um, and in Wheela, like that, that is a relatively uncommon thing. Um, mm-hmm. There are not many, many associations, cooperatives that do that kind of thing. And so, with you know these folks in Gigante, um, you know, led by Reinaldo Guzman, um, you know, he has been a farmer in the farm. His his specific farm, Finca Casablanca, has been there for just about two hundred years. It was founded. He says his great grandfather, but that math doesn't make sense. It has to be like a great, 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 great grandfather. Yeah. I don't, I don't know exactly, uh-huh. but in the early 1800s, his, his family 
you know, settled on that land uh, from uh-huh. Spain. Um, and at that time, he says, there were already cacao trees growing. Um, sure. And, you know, since that time, they have cultivated it. They've grown it to be the largest farm and oldest farm in Rila. And in recent years, have founded this association, Asoka Gigante, um, which is now buying from, I think, around 20, 20 producers in the area. Mm. Um, and these farms are all right next to one another. They're all relatively small, about five or six hectares. Um, but there's a string of, I think, about four or five farms that are really considered the oldest in all of Wheela. And those are specifically the ones that we are buying from. That's um, crazy. You have so to... It's, Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, you have to think for a second about the stories that could be told by the the cacao trees and the buildings that are living, you know, uh, totally. on the property. And even Reynaldo's house is the original house in that property. Oh, wow. It is well over 100 years old. That's incredible. Um, and it is, like, it really is. Like, it is something that should be in a museum. Um, oh. And, you know, it's just kind of forgotten. Right. Like many things, it's just kind of, been pushed to the wayside and forgotten by the world, but specifically by, by the craft chocolate industry. Um, you know, their Asoka Gigante's biggest client is, is Luker, uh, L-U-K-E-R. Yeah. One of the biggest buyer of, of cacao in Colombia. Mm. You buy something like 35% of the country's production. Wow. And most of it, I mean, it's not bought at any sort of a premium. It's bought at market levels. They may have some sort of small program for buying a slightly higher quality product, but it's almost a disincentive. Like the premium is so small that it's just like, why would I? Right. Why would I try so much harder to get not that much more? Yeah. You know. Um, and so when when we first got connected with them, the idea was, no, we need to make them an offer that is much higher than anything that anyone else is going to pay, in order to you know incentivize them to work with us, incentivize them to produce higher quality. And fortunately, when we initiated with them last, I guess, first time I visited them was in May of last year. Um, you know, it went, it went well. And we bought, we bought cacao, we moved it both to the U.S. and to the U.K. And, you know, at that time, like, we were still kind of learning, like, well, what are we doing here? And we're still, we're still very much learning. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we offered a price that we felt was more than fair, was more than like above any, more than anything else that were being offered, but still was like not a super amount of risk for us because we were just figuring out how to do it. We had, we moved containers of cacao without having any clients, without knowing anybody who's going to buy anything from us. It's a big risk. And so, it, what was that? I said, that's a big risk. Yeah, it is. You know, it's, it was a calculated risk, but it's a risk nonetheless. You know, it was like, I think we can do this, but I don't know. You know, so, right. you know, we, we moved it. And, you know, unlike coffee, which we try to, we try to forward contract so much coffee. We, you know, we, we ship a container, we get pre-ship samples, we send them to all the roasters. And, you know, most containers are somewhere between 70 and 80% contracted before it even arrives. These days, even more than that, because the, because of delays with, with shipping. Mm-hmm. But with the cacao, we shipped it all, and we were like, we'll figure it out once it gets there. <laughs> I like that attitude. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, 
yeah, I mean, honestly, it's kind of been the way we've operated more and more or less recently. And one phrase that keeps coming back to me, I've repeated to myself, I don't even know where I first heard it, but it's a Spanish phrase, uh, se hace al camino al andar, meaning like you make the way by walking. Mm. Like you figure it out as you go. I like and that. with yeah. cacao, it's very much been that. Um, it's, it's been like, we don't exactly know what we're doing right now. We learn as we go, but we see a need. We see a, like we see a need for producers. We see a need on behalf of, like, of, of chocolate makers. We also see an opportunity for us. You know, we are not a you know as much as we talk about being a benefit to everybody. We are a for-profit business. I have a family. I have two kids. Like I, I got to support them. You know, and there's nobody moving high-quality cacao from Wheela to craft chocolate craft chocolate makers all over the world. And so it just feels like there is there's a very solid win-win-win scenario here, and someone just needs to make it happen. Yeah. Well, as a chocolate maker and somebody who I'm a you know very small scale size, so I do have the ability, even though it's more expensive, to buy you know a bag here, two bags there, uh, and to try out new new origins. I am extremely extremely grateful for this cacao. I mean, it's. The beans are a beautiful color. Like I said at the beginning, there's there's next to no broken beans that are in there. And then, you know, the the flavor, it's it's just it it's it's vibrant, it's chocolatey, it's creamy, you know, it's fruity, it's so many things. So uh, you know, I, and I'm excited to share, you know, I I would love more people to be using these beans because they're absolutely worth it. Um, and, and, and the work that's being done in Colombia, um, is second to none. I mean, it's just, it's truly wonderful. So, well, you know, this already, but you were literally the first person to say, <laughs> yep, I'm in. And, I, and like, I can't, I mean, what, what did you buy that first time? Like two bags? Two bags. Yeah. Like, I was like over the moon. I like made my week. I oh. was like, oh my goodness. We didn't totally mess this up. There's someone who thinks this is good. All right. I think we have something. And like since then, we've obviously gotten lots more great feedback. And you have obviously, you know, I, I know the craft chocolate world is small and you have told people about us and have come to us. And like we've gotten really great feedback and we're finally starting to see some, you know, some momentum with sales. And, uh, you know, I, I can't tell you how grateful I am just for like responding to us, oh, let alone. Well sampling something and then buying something and then telling people about it. It's just, you know, it's amazing. And like, we, we could not be more grateful. Oh, well, I mean, the, the feelings mutual and I will continue to, um, tell anybody that will listen about it. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I love working with you guys. Um, you know, if there's anybody that, uh, owns coffee shops or, you know, buys coffee, please, uh, check out their website. Um, everybody has been so wonderful and accommodating to work with, um, you know, even David in Pennsylvania, you know, waiting for me on a Saturday to drive down and pick up a few more bags, which, you know, a lot of people wouldn't do, but, uh, you know, it's, it's those things that mean a lot to somebody that's small like myself and, and probably to most people as well. Uh, so, um, well, Kyle, I really, really appreciate your time today. 
Um, this was, no, this, I mean, yeah, I mean, we'll have to do this again sometime cause there's a whole lot more to be discussed here. Um, yeah, like I said, we I, could go on for hours. Yeah. Hours. Yeah. I think we'll definitely have to have a part two at some point in the next few months for sure. But, um, cool. I, I do appreciate it. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. Well, thank you. Thank you for everything. Honestly. You're very welcome. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of Ohm Travelers. Make sure to visit our website, www.nostalgiachocolates.com, for the full show notes. A huge thank you to Kyle and Osito for all the work that they do. You can find them at Osito Coffee on Instagram, and their website is www.ositocoffee.com, O-S-I-T-O, coffee.com. As always, a huge thank you to DJ Soul Rising for allowing us the use of his song, The Journey, for our intro and outro. You can find him wherever you find music and also at soulrising.com, S-O-L-Rising.com. Until next time. Music.